arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Welcome to our week on Greek religion, specifically one of the most famous myths and religious activities in ancient Greece, Demeter and Persephone and their worship at the Eleusinian Mysteries. Celebrating the mysteries was a religious activity which was centered on the myth or the narrative of the goddess Demeter. And we're going to focus on this connection, the connection between an action and a narrative. There was a connection between the myth and then the cult at Eleusis. The Tabanshah have a resemblance of what you just heard to a description of the Greek myths and cult. In Sojourn, this so-called cult leads to the ultimate reality and Loftus moves closer to his destiny as he merges with the Tarbun Shah. From near death to the bountiful Tarbun Shah rooms of the elect, Loftus sees the hypocritical nature of the entrenched religion. Here is episode two of the Surrey of Khan by Robert P. Fitton, tonight on Fitton on the Air podcast. Chapter 76. With a full stomach and a clean-shaven beard, Loftus lounged within the warming pool bubbles. He was given oils and powders by several other tenders and a pullover top, rough baggy pants and boots. The tenders escorted him through the same opening Garold had used behind the statues. John, his beard also trimmed, wore a lighter, loose-fitting garment. He peered down the constricted stone corridor and then at Loftus. What do you suppose the Eskas will want with us? Obviously, the Bunshaft has piqued their interest. I would only hope they will listen to what I have to say. I'm disturbed that only the Semto seemed to be able to worship with the Taban Shah. Loftus figured they had entered into the Nomar itself, but the tenders quickly veered left into a smaller stone room with luminous blue and green stained glass. The domed ceiling painting depicted more warriors with black helmets riding guampas. Loftus walked across black tiles cut between wood benches, as they approached a linen-covered table, five old men in white robes tied at the waist with red sashes moved from behind a pale green curtain and were seated in high-backed wood chairs. Let the audience begin, said a gray-robed individual near the stained glass and stone. Are you truthful? asked the center Esker. Or do you deceive? We are truthful, said Loftus, slowly stepping forward. A powerful word, the truth, and a powerful force when used correctly. You wear an ancient bunshaf inscribed with the tenants from the Seba. Does this bunshaf also reflect the truth, or has it been forged falsely? My bunshaf reflects the truth. He studied their rigid faces, smooth and inexpressive. The glassy stairs demonstrated a fanaticism he had seen politically on earth, yet within their narrow beliefs he sensed great power. Men with this authority would not relish having their power questioned. Where did you get the bunshaf? asked another. I received this bunshaf when my father lay dying in battle. Did your father fight for the Tolton or against the Tolton? Neither my father fought the Creods. His response instigated confusion and several minutes of muted discussion. The one who spoke first grinned. Then you must be immensely old. According to the Seba scholars, the Creods fought the Taban Shah 27,000 years ago. I am not from this planet. We question your authenticity. And you have asked for the truth. And when I tell you the truth, you question its authenticity. How did you arrive here? Asked the Esker on the far right. I arrived here across the passageway between worlds. Now the discussion was vociferous. That is not a proper response. You won't listen. I said I traveled across a passageway constructed by Tabun Shah. You will bring us your bunshaf, one of them said. Loftus lifted the bunshaf chain over his head as he walked toward them. 
he slowly slid the clear pyramid on the white linen fabric. Each of the Eskas spent considerable time studying the inscriptions as well as the configuration of the Bunshaf. This Bunshaf refers to the Suryaf Khan, said the smaller Eska, who had not said very much. I had never seen anything like this. His eyes moistened. Perhaps this is the portion of another Bunshaf. See how the smooth edges are designed to it. But such claims about being the Suryaf Khan are not allowed. I don't understand. You are not of the center, said the center Eska. And does your center have the truth? Do they know the things that I know? Have they seen what I have seen? Loftus leaned on the table. Give me the answers I have searched for. You have defamed the ancient truths. You have come here only to distort the truth. Loftus stared at the Bunshaf. You hold the written words of Taban Shah, but you should heed the great prophets and what they say within the Saba. Do you not realize what the tenants tell you? The same Esker kept at him. The word tells us of false prophets. Why do you ignore the obvious? If you do not prepare this planet for the Kriot invasion, Taban Shah will be threatened. What invasion? I tell you, the time is now. You will not be given second chances. Everyone on this planet, including the Tolton, must stand together. Suryav Khan needs no unification. Loftus shook his head. You people espouse the word of Taban Shah almost to an art form. Yet, you steal the word for yourselves and for your Semta. The Saba was written for all Mantari to read and learn. Fools! We could have you killed for that remark! Why do you worship at all if you don't put into deeds what you have read in the Saba? Asked Loftus as he moved back to John. And what of Abishah? You are no Eska! You desecrate the words by speaking of Abishah! Loftus turned and stared for a few moments before climbing onto one of the varnished benches. Listen to your hearts! They stood nearly in unison and then waddled from the room. John raised his brows. Just a thought, Tom, but I don't think you're going to win this debate. I felt that they would listen. I need to get to Abishah. Without actually locating Tom and Shah, this backward planet can't feign off a full-scale space invasion, said John. Agreed, and they are the closest avenue we have to stop this. Down back, two of the gray-haired robe tender appeared by the stained glass and stone. We are here to accompany you outside. Loftus pressed his lips and he walked with John down the aisle. What I need is the luck. The luck? Zack knew about it. The old Loftus luck. On the contrary, the tendra brought them to the narrow stone corridor. The fact that we are alive is testament to whatever luck you may have. I'm beginning to think it's more than just luck. Loftus was stunned by the size of the crowd gathered in the torch-lit enclave. He moved down the slab stairs. He squeezed between two large congregates of people. He cupped his hand and spoke loudly to John. What is all this? A long platform abutted one of the stone buildings across the enclave. Several people dressed in bright garments milled near a speaker's platform. Loftus dodged the crowd and trekked along the cobblestones for a better view. Halfway across the stairs, a tall woman with sweeping blonde hair pushed through the crowd. She raised her hand and called out. I saw you come out of the Noma, she said in a clear and intelligent voice. She had smooth, youthful skin, sea blue but mysterious eyes. How is this possible? You do not wear the robes of the Semta? Loftus pressed his lips. Neither of us is with the Semta. Well, well, I guess it was my lucky day, he said, smiling and motioned John ahead. Not so fast. She grabbed his arm and held it for a few seconds. Who are you? Who are you? Would be the more appropriate question. I asked you first. Loftus. Just Loftus. Just Loftus? Nothing more? 
Tom Loftus, and this is my, uh, this is John. John nodded and raised his brows at Loftus. And you, miss, what is your name? Zuni. Zuni, you have traveled far, and you are very perceptive. He started through the crowd, but heard her shouting from behind. Where are you from? Loftus let her catch up. The Azkrans. What? She smiled as she peered across the enclave to the Noma. Someone from the Azkrans just walks into the Nova? You are playing me for a fool. I feel a greater presence. Loftus again caught her eyes. I wouldn't think of playing you for a fool, Zuni. What is all this? asked John. Why are these people out here? Let me understand what you're saying. You're from the Azkrans, yet you don't know about the gathering? Gathering of the people, Loftus, she said, moving closer. Those of us who are not of the Semter and have not seen the Noma gather in anticipation as we have for hundreds of years. We will darken the square as the Saba tells us slowly to light our torches of hope. Interesting, said Loftus, gazing at the smooth blue Noma dome. I don't understand why everyone can't worship Tabin Shah. She glanced at the Noma as she spoke. Since the seers died in the first millennium, worship to those outside the Semta has been forbidden. She faced him and looked into his eyes. It is a way of life, Loftus. That is not what the Saber meant to happen. One with loyalties to the Tolton? I have heard names like yours, and I sense more than knows about the Saber. You sound like the Eskis. I didn't say I was loyal to the Tolton. I still don't understand how you got to see the Eskis. I have my ways, said Loftus. She turned toward the platform and he detected a slight smile. No doubt you do, and those once lost will be found. You have a destiny. Oh, really? While Loftus found her surprisingly empathetic, he more urgently wondered if she could get them food and shelter. Zuni, we are in need of, I have to go. She plunged back through the crowd. Interesting girl. She seems to find you interesting. I'm a mystery, John. We need to locate some food. She'll find you again. Chapter 77 Loftus found a food table near the stage. They munched on bread and fruits during the numerous speeches. As the Enclave's torches blazed, references were made to the Ashen leader who was about to speak. Loftus set a tin water container on the table. A man with no teeth wrapped his arm. Do you believe? Believe what? asked Loftus. What Corrine tells us. Corrine? Leader of the Ashens, said the man, staring at him. We have been away for some time, replied Loftus, remembering his experience with the Oryx Psalms and the Ascrans. When he sees himself, the destroyer will fight, said the man, and he blended back into the crowd. What did he mean by that? I don't know. Loftus peered over the thousands now assembled in the enclave. He had hoped to convince the Eskus to find Abishar, and now he was lost in the mass. You know, I have resonated to Tabinshar since I was in the mines. Maybe I've resonated when I didn't even know it. But I don't understand why they would be turned away from the Nomar. I implore them, I demand that they make this clear to me. Less than a minute later, Loftus felt a tug on his shoulder and saw Zuni's light hair and blue eyes when he turned. Come with me, Loftus. Why? There is room on the platform. My family is close to Coleraine. I sense you must find Coleraine. I have known him since I was a youth. I see. She grabbed his hand and pulled him toward the platform. You too, John. Loftus scanned the people seated above. Which one is Coleraine? The entourage has not yet arrived. Corrine has dark eyes and his hair is long and white. She seated them away from the speaker's platform. While she met with several men across the platform, John tapped his ribs. She thinks we have some connection to the Noma. Look across the square, Tom. She also seems to have unusual perceptive abilities. The wispy white hair of an elderly man seated atop a high camino, ruffled in the breeze. He wore the Eska's white robe and red shack and red sash. Younger men prompted the Guampus, and the carriage inched through the crowd toward the platform. 
The entourage stopped about 30 feet away and more men appeared. They lifted Corain's chair from the Camino and carried him up the stairs to the stage. A taller chair was pushed into position behind the speaker's platform and the Ashen leader was hoisted into place, but his aides remained near the chair. Corain gripped the edge of an elevated platform and stared across the enclave. He briefly raised his fingers to his temples and stared at the Noma Dome. May the word of Tavan Shah be with you. We gather in hope of becoming the Semta. How long will the Eskas not realize that the Ashens are capable of resonating with Tavan Shah? We wish to resonate in joining Tavan Shah when we die. John leaned over to Loftus's ear. Azuni crossed the rear platform. I haven't heard that part before, the part about being with Taban Shah after you die. A new twist, said Loftus as he looked up at Zuni. She smiled and sat next to him. Loftus returned the smile and she leaned toward John. Nowhere in the saber is it written that you go with Taban Shah after you die. How do you know of the saber, she asked. You have learned the saber in pain, in captivity. Yes, that is exactly right, said Loftus, but I have read the Sabah. No such references about being with Tob and Shar after death exist. Many things are not in the Sabah, Loftus. The resonation of great leaders brings forth such truth. It is truthful what Korain says. The Semta and the Noma Eskas do not believe this. So there are two distinct kinds of belief in Tab and Shah's existence. That is why the Eskas won't let you in. I see that now. The Eskas have no use for the Ashens. Let us listen to Korain. The aging Korain struggled, enunciating every word slowly to the crowd. Join me, said Korain. Let us chant the truth so all inside the Noma will hear the pleas of the people. As Tabansha hears us, we will all feel that acceptance that comes with the resonation to the lost ones. Let us begin. The chant moved like a wave over the enclave and extended into a mournful wail. An accompanying verse referred to slaves without souls within the Noma walls. They also sang about their own plight and how they were held captive outside the Noma. For over half an hour, the square reverberated in the somber tones taken directly from the Saba. Korain was seated and in deep thought. Zuni, what's wrong with him? Korain is ill. He will die soon. How do you know this? She held his wrist briefly. I have the ability to see. Loftus turned when he heard Korain's solitary, weakened voice again. Surely the Eskers will hear the 5,000 mentary voices. They will know we stand firm against their rigid ways. When they do gather for the Noma, let us try and enter. We will occupy their entrances until they receive us or have taken us away. We say, let us worship the Ancient Ones beside the Eskas and the Semta. It is our right, just as certainly as the sun burns in the daytime sky. We will reach for Tabon Shah and partake of the mystery. Loftus leaned to Zuni. He's taking a great chance by advocating occupation of the Noma. It is our right, Loftus. We have been denied what is lawfully ours. I wish to speak with him. You, you have been inside with the Eskers. Are you the Suryaf Khan? Loftus removed his bunshaft and placed it in her hand. For a moment she seemed confused. Her eyes moistened when she read the tenets and astonishment swept over her face. Where did you get this? I will only tell you that it is mine. Powerful words, she said as she stood. Again she studied the tenets in the torchlight. Corain must see this. She gripped the bunshaft and stood. Then she moved across the platform. As she descended the steps, John put his hand on Loftus's shoulder. Are you sure you want her to take that bunch off? She'll be back. He looked at Corain, hunched in the chair, but still speaking. And I am betting we'll get to talk with Corain.
Hours later, John and Loftus waited in the cool night air along several cottages. A hulk in a long dark coat jaunted across the road. He was a muscular brute with an equally aggressive tone and now in possession of Loftus's Bunshaft. I am Shurek. Corrine will see you. Loftus paused as the smoke from campfires wafted across the dirt road. I would like my Bunshaft back. Questions have arisen about this Bunshaft, said Sharik. His dark eyes had a continual arrogance. Soon he moved closer to Loftus. Coleraine wishes to see the Bunshaft. Sharoff seemed uncomfortable with her so close to Loftus. When Loftus left the gathering with her, she remained seated behind him like an admiring groupie. Where is Coleraine? I will send couriers for you, said Sharak abruptly. He clasped his oversized hand over her wrist. You will come with me. I do not wish to go. I will wait with them. I have not asked whether you wish to come along. Then he yanked her away. Loftus started in pursuit, but John held his shoulders. Tom, don't do it. He has no right to do that to her. I don't know what his rights are. We need to talk with Coleraine and maybe get back to the Ascrans. Loftus watched Sharuk drag Zuni inside the glowing tents along the campfires across the field. He shook his head. I don't like him. Doesn't matter whether you like him or not. These people have their own ways. We're the intruders here. We can't confront the Eskers like he wants. We need their help. The embers burst into the starry sky. Loftus rubbed his eyes and slowly pushed his fingers to his temples. He struggled to visualize the pool and the pyramid below the dome in the same direction of his vision, but fell short. In deep thought, he sensed hands on his shoulders. He opened his eyes and he saw her. Zuni? Loftus, Coleraine will see you now. Her eyes expressed an admiration for him he was not sure was deserved. My Bunshaft, Coleraine has it. I will ask you again, are you the Suryaf Khan? That is not for me to decide. She extended her soft hand and helped him up. What does he think? Coleraine knows the tenants speak of the Suryaf Khan. She hovered close to Loftus as they crossed the field. More people gathered around the tents. Who is Sharik? Sunni's bright eyes grew fearful. Sharik, Sharik is my promissory. You're what? I have been promised to him. Loftus's brow furrowed, knowing John was probably thinking they should stay clear of her problems. We appreciate being able to talk with Coleraine. Again, they started across the road. The arrangement is made by families. I have no control over it. What contacts does Coleraine have here in the Nezcrans? asked John. Coleraine has power with our people. Loftus wondered as he watched the glowing embers and smoke swirl into the night. Even with his thousands of followers in the Enclave, he had no power within the Nomer itself. Yet, as Zuni led him toward a larger tent set within a city of tents, he somehow believed Coleraine could move him closer to Tabun Shah. Guards with swords protruding from side sheaths lifted a thick tent flap. Loftus stepped into the warmer, smoky air. Light from a central fire pranced around the puffy tent fabric, and sparks shot up through the center opening. Atop the raised area, behind the huge, crackling logs, Coleraine lay under maroon blankets. Sharuk was probably somewhere within the dozens of Mantari inside the tent. Zuni led Loftus around the outer edges to the stairs. Coleraine turned as they crossed the upper area. Within his weakened state, hope resided in his fire-lit eyes. He clutched the bunshaft in his bony hands. His teeth were crooked and yellowed, and he now spoke in a mellow voice. I used to think I was the Suryaf Khan. I am just a simple Mantari, once an Aska who left the Noma. I relinquished the trappings of power and position so I would be enlightened by the simple truths of the Seba. The truth can sometimes be a long process. I am not the Suryaf Khan. Do you understand? I'm not sure, said Loftus. Corain's eyes moistened and his voice now trembled. I never thought I would live to see this day. 
What does it all mean? You're Bunshaf. You are here. You are he, spoken of in the tenants. It is you who will save Tabunshah. How? I, I don't know how. Korain closed his eyes. The long white hair and beard made him appear almost dead. But his dark eyes brightened as he handed the Bunshaf back to Loftus. Use this to find the Ancient Ones. But I don't understand what I need to do. Loftus watched the shadows and dim light flicker across the tent walls and sensed this moment was critical. There is a place, said Coleraine, spoken of within the writings not of the Saber, writings stored in the Noma, Mount Abishah. Yes, Abishah. Deep resonation, properly set, many have journeyed there through the ages. In a vision, I ascended Abishar in my youth, but I never understood why. These words are written inside the Noma? asked Loftus. Yes, instructions for the ancient ceremony. Within deep concentration, heightened consciousness reaches new levels of understanding. You can ascend Abishar and enter the Bonshaf. Of course. Loftus immediately thought back to the clear pyramid, overlooking the reflecting pool and the stars. Getting inside the Noma is no easy task, he said, looking skyward toward the fire opening. Even if I reach Abisha, what do I do then? Listen to the words from the third millennium. Be in constant vigil. Suffer your pain without despair. The answers to the past are not readily seen. He wears the tenants and has traveled far. The Surya of Khan. Waste not time and climb the slopes of Abishah. Bring back the truth before we are destroyed. I remember that verse when I was imprisoned in the morgue. You bear the burden you never sought. You are the one long awaited. When it is time, I will bring you in the Noma. But you are ill. I am dying, and my days will be gone, but I know what I must do. We will receive the written words and the power within our resignation. We will realize Abishah. Chapter 78. Confined within the small Pizikar, Sard watched yet another Nakedim image of the Galga campaign. The Mantari Azakars retreated in disarray after his main thrust. Some were blasted from the Humea. The Tabanshar were never seen on the home Urkham again, and when the Mantari Selvets and Vargats were driven back to Galga, no one ever witnessed Tabanshar's presence. Fram references to Tabanshar and the securing of their safety continued as the Mantari retreated into a powerful time and space distortion. In the lower corner of the Nakedim, a contact signal flashed. Sarad touched the object, and the Galga image was replaced with Tark, still in the underground cavern. A Mantari earth reefed was highlighted at the top of the screen. 5 January 2048. We have made great progress and still have orbiters in place in Mantari earth orbit for sub-atmospheric piquaflow. Ellsworthy has provided unbeknownst assistance, and with Monday has enlisted several Selvin. Bathurst Island is now assigned Mantari Rupicons. Saad froze the image for a moment, realizing how much time had passed since Tark first arrived. He also understood that considerable more time would elapse when he would finally meet Tark on Mantari Earth. Again, he placed his grasper on the screen. With this ability, something the realm has used for Cantarus. I can eventually subjugate this Urkum. These creatures do not know their duty. They live in a world evolving toward only indulging themselves in their own pleasures. Exactly what I will provide for them. The message ended, but another contact signal flashed. Sarad again touched the screen. August 29th, 2048. Tark was hunched in a small white room. Glory to the realm. This is Tark. I am in great danger from an unexpected attack. A very clever Mantari human who 
said Sard loudly as the message ended and the starry screen was back at Golgar. His fangs protruded. No, this cannot be. Where is the contact? Sard will not allow these men tarry. The contact signal flashed and Sard wrapped the screen. Tark stood next to brightly glowing Pequa fields. I used shooters to take back the complex. But the men Terry Proaska and his Selvin have escaped onto the passageway of the Tabun Shah. Sard would have sliced this inferior into a thousand Westic chunks. The men Terry Proaska is gone, and I will find him after we continue. The Piqua flow waves are now brought around the circum from the coils behind me. Control of the Piqua flow operations is secured, and the humans will submit to what I give them. Well done, Awes. Well done. And the plans will now go forth to simulate the Nakedom and Fram realities. It will be possible to control what they see and hear. They rely too much on their own screens and do not question. I will give them what they want, and I have simulated every portion of their lives from birth till death. Just destroy them, Awes. But I worry about the Mantari Proaska. Then kill him! And I will send my next contact after I have again sailed the passageway. The Nakedim dissolved into images of Golga. Sard scanned his matrixes for another contact signal, but nothing came. He finished viewing the Golga battle, but then thought about Mantari Earth. His Awas's tendencies as a Rupacon always allowed him to display mercy to the inferiors. He wondered about the Mantari Proaska and wished to face him directly. Using him as an example would quell the others, and yet Sard could not deny his Awas's cleverness in tricking the inferiors. No Creod would allow himself to be denigrated in such a manner. The beep was steady enough to break his meditation. On the screen, a contact signal flashed. He raised his grasper and activated the captured message. 31 March 2050. Glory to the realm, this is Tark. I have made no contact for some time. I have crossed the passageway and returned, but in my zest to find an entrance to the Mantari Urkum, I was briefly detained by the Grebes machine gatekeepers to this Mantari Urkum. While confined, I learned they are able to open gateways to the Urkum, tunnels for the travelers. These tunnels can be modified to accommodate Waskums and to march Selvels through. Brilliant, Awis, brilliant. I had to use my shooter on the machine creatures. We could gain a foothold on this Urkum, surprising the Mantari. When I left again, I used the Azakar constructed for sailing the sea between the Urkums. It is a Pequa-based dimensional warp. The Tabern Shah should be respected for this. The Taban Shah will die. Mantari Earth must now be transformed into total submission. Sard will destroy the Mantari on the Urkum and cross the passageway. Good work, Awas. Another contact, said Sard as his imager flashed. He pushed it quickly. 13th June 2119. Glory to the realm, this is Tark. It is my pleasure to report to the realm the taming of this Urkum, Mantari Earth. It has taken me 152 orbits of their Urkum around their Azores, but I have now placed the last colony chamber dwellers in place. What they see from birth to death is all controlled within altered consciousness. I do not use Nakedim screens, but their own thinking process. There will be no progress, no reflection, only sublime existence. Truly inferiors, said Sard. A wide plain, convoluted with pale blue, symmetrical bumps covered an unidentified area. Sard stretched back in the rester. Tart's signal indicated the Pizikar was close to Mantari Earth. Under magnification, he received Pequa and visual images from a yellow azor set in the edges of distant side clouds on the edge of the Humea. But the Pizikar had not slowed. 
On this Nikitim Tark demonstrated reality simulations with several of the reclined inferiors as Sard attempted to slow his craft. Without a reduction speed, within the next half a roar, the Pisikar would pass by the Mantari Earth system and continue forever out of the Humea. Green outlines of the vessel showed a continual vibration, which left unchecked could rip apart the Pisikar. Forward sweepers were now inoperative, leaving him vulnerable to the smallest particle impact. Structural weakness in the Pizikar's outer shell was evident in sinewy stress cracks on the tactical. Sard demands this will stop. He crashed against the panel edge, ripped open an area just below his matrixes. As he fought to regain his position in the rester, the Pizikar jolted and he bounced off the wall. He gripped the rester edges and pushed the tacticals. Override systems would not respond and the inside temperatures rose. He lost his grasp and the pain pulsed in the back of his shell. He could not move and his graspers slowly opened. The Pizikar was breaking up and he was helpless to stop it. Chapter 79. Loftus gazed at the morning fog rising from the silver lake scooped within the mountains. For three days he stood every morning in the portico of Zuni's father's villa, well outside of Epic. No word was received from Korang concerning the entry into the Noma, and his performing an ancient ceremony to reach Abishah. He looked back to the courtyard where Zuni, her brother and her father, ate breakfast around a large table shielded by a long stone balustrade. Zuni revered Loftus in a way he deemed undeserved, and her attentions also provoked the wrath of Shurik. Several times Loftus found himself explaining why he was merely standing at the villa until Corain's contact. Tom, said John, walking along the veranda columns. Loftus turned. You have a good sleep? John looked serious. Actually, I've been into town. Sharak is not happy with your being out here. I never would have guessed, he said, shaking his head. I've made no advances toward Zuni. He doesn't see it that way. He's organizing people to demand that Deso remove you from his villa. Look, I've done nothing to lead her on. Nothing. John held his wrist. They're fearful of what Coleraine has said about you being the Suryov Khan. Loftus furrowed his brow and peered back over the lake. Where is Coleraine? He could be dead for giving me that information. Soon he headed down the portico. Her blonde strands glistened in the morning sun. I trust you two are well this morning. We are. He looked into her bright eyes. She was young and intelligent and full of energy and had an empathy he could not explain. I'm concerned, as I've said before, that I haven't heard from Corain. She paused and her eyes filled. Corain is near death. We have to get inside the Noma. He's the one with the access to the Noma's ancient knowledge, but he is in and out of consciousness. We thought he'd never recover, so I didn't want you to worry. He must have passed on the knowledge to somebody knowing he was ill, said John. She shook her head. He hasn't. What about your father? asked Loftus. He's a wealthy trader. With no connections to the Noma, the Eskis despise traders. Having escaped the morgue and crossed the high desert only to be stymied so close to Abishah, sent his emotions surging. He stomped across the grass toward the lake. He heard her calling, but he kept walking. Loftus! Loftus! He turned as she caught him. His people are trying to get the location of the knowledge, but he needs the Eskers. I have read the Saber, and I believe this planet will be attacked by the Creod realm. I know this is hard to believe, but I've come across a passageway from another planet. In my youth, I witnessed the destruction of my world. I lost my father and my mother because of the continuation of an ancient war with this race. I sense, I know what you say is true, Loftus. And it will happen here, too. While I don't know how this planet can be united, nor how we can stop it, I do know that the only hope lies in traveling to Abishah, that place I saw in a vision when I was lying in the desert. Then you must trust in Tabanshah. Follow what your heart tells you placed her fingers around his bunshaft and briefly studied it before she looked up. You carry the burden that none of us carries. She pressed her lips. 
I want to go with you to Mount Abisha, but I fear I cannot. Can I even go to Abisha? Over her shoulders, he saw Sharak with several men arguing with John back at the patio. Looks like trouble. Sharak, she said, turning. Sharak marched with five men down the steps. Loftus turned back from Zuni, clenched his fists, and prepared for a confrontation. Sharak glanced at Zuni, but faced Loftus. You seem to pride yourself as a hero of our people. I haven't claimed that. And she is mine. Loftus stared at him. I haven't disputed that either. You are close to challenge, said Sharak, raising his huge fists. No man has successfully challenged me except for the liars and the frauds. Are you always this hospitable? Or is it your nature to be a pinhead? An expression of great intelligence, said John, stepping closer. Loftus respects your prowess, don't you, Tom? Loftus half grinned and Sharak pointed at him. You are clever with your words, but I warn you, stay away from her, or I will beat your puny body into insignificance. Loftus rolled his tongue about his cheek as his anger grew. He swung his left leg swiftly into Sharak's stomach. And as the larger man keeled over, he delivered a series of quick chops to the head and ribs. Sharak collapsed and lay motionless to the sky. Loftus winked at John. Zuni's mouth hung open as he started back to the portico. She did not protest his actions. Looks like he beat your puny body into submission, said John as they reached the stairs. Sharak was still on his back. I don't like the way he treats her. You're all right. He does not treat her well said the balding Dacel from the open archway atop the veranda. I commend you, Loftus. I have waited for years to see Sharak taken. Why do you allow him with your daughter? asked Loftus. Arrangements have been made. Family has little control. He walked across the portico. I have news from Epic. Kurang has regained some strength, at least enough to accompany you to the Noma. I have sent for a Camino that will bring you back to the city. Thank you. If things were different, I would ask my daughter to see you. I'm afraid I have my own destiny. Loftus gazed back across the field. Sharak sat up, but was still not on his feet. And Zuni was halfway to the portico. Zuni wishes to take part in the ceremony. Korain is the leader of our people. Such participation would be an honor if you can arrange it. I believe I can. Soon he moved up the stairs, but kept her eyes on Loftus. Sarek is conscious, but not well. Perhaps now he will learn not to taunt people. Zuni, said Dazel. You will accompany Loftus. Korain is ready to enter the Noma. Her smile told Loftus she was happy to leave Sharak in the field. It is of great importance to our people. If I can be of any help to you when you return, said Dazel. I have been to the Ascrans and the Mead. I know of the Tolton's brutality and how he captured power. Loftus looked at John and then again thought about Kath. Dacel, I thank you for your offer and I may need it. I don't know what will happen on Abishar. My daughter is a gifted seer. And if you are indeed the Surya of Khan, as she says, Abishar will not happen to you. It will happen for you. Chapter 80. Korain's people carried torches and hoisted his carved wood chair, laden with blankets, through the dank stone tunnel. The aging leader drifted between consciousness, occasional lucid periods in sleep. Loftus marveled at the underground system extending a half a mile from the enclave. Soon he moved beside him, directly behind John, and a thin man with scraggly peppered hair. Loftus had seen him during the enclave gathering. He had introduced himself as Grail, back in the village. Grail cleared his throat and spoke as he walked. Not much farther to the stairs. The tenders will bring the ancient words. Corain mumbled something from the chair. Grail increased his pace and leaned over. He nodded as they proceeded. Corain tells me the tenders will meet us at the top of the stairs. Loftus glanced ahead and then whispered to Zuni. I forget that Corain was an esker. That was long ago, but there are tenders that remember him. We still run a great risk if we are caught in here. 
It is up to the discretion of the Eskers what they wish to do with us. I have heard of people being killed and their bodies left in the enclave. Then I should consider myself spared. The entourage slowed at the base of a sweeping stone stairway. Loftus trotted behind John. The stairs, lighted by small metal lamps embedded in the stone, jutted left and onto a landing in another stairway. The aides lifted Corrine slowly up the stairs. Voices echoed down the stair walls. Grail spoke with several of the gray-robed tenders at the staircase opening. Corrine was moved into the corridor as Loftus motioned Zuni into the brighter area. Open-air windows overlooked the lush green gardens and birds chirped in the warmer air. Again, Loftus studied the battle depiction across brightly painted murals. The crisp Mantari warrior statues lined the corridor. They stopped outside an apricot-painted rotunda, opening to thick translucent doors etched with intricate drawings. Faces and fresh flowers adorned the marble slabs, housing more statues. The tendra opened a smaller door and they followed Corrine's chair into a constricted hall, boarded with stone and a wall of crystal glass. The tendra opened a heavy wooden door within the gray stone. A sweet aroma drifted outward. Loftus peered over a smooth wood trail and carved varnished spindles into a massive hall, inflated into a luminescent, indented, white-squared dome. Benches descended toward an elevated green platform containing a central altar. Decorated with intricately embroidered crimson and white cloths, the tendrils secured the crystal-etched doors and followed the red glare from glass sconces along the upper rim. They brought Corrine's chair to the lower platform, positioning it directly in front of the altar. Grail directed Loftus to the first row of benches. He sat between John and Zuni as the tendrils entered a small room at the rear of the platform. The red sconces glowed along the wall rim as the dome darkened and the outside doors cast an icy light into the sloping aisles. The tenders emerged from the back and carried flickering candles and an open parchment scroll to the altar cloth. Let your mind sift through your own distractions and join hands, said Corrine in an unusually powerful voice. One of the tenders held the parchment steady. Colrain's eyes rolled upward in the candlelight, but his voice assumed a tone of an ancient church cantor as he read the parchment words. I resonate my spirit to Tabanshah from the first millennium. In the beginning was the end, and the end was the beginning. The call beckons through the ages and rings through all millennia. Trust what Tabanshah has given you. Trust in the days ahead and the enemy's defeat. Resonate to Abashah, the point of departure for all worlds. Climb the slopes of Abashah, and all the doors will be open for those who believe, those who walk the shores of forever, where there are no beginnings, there are no ends. Sabun delicior meliubum. Repeat my words, Sarbum Deliosa Meliubum. Corrine's voice modulated above the others. We are called to Albashah. We will resonate in the fullness of our beliefs. We continue to resonate, resonate. The candle flames dimmed and the entire Noma image faltered, but bounced back. Slowly the crystal doors were also darkened as Corrine repeated the first millennium verse. In the beginning was the end, and the end was the beginning. The call beckons through the ages and rings through all millenniums. Trust what Tabit Shah has given you. Trust in the days ahead and the enemy's defeat. Resonate to Avan Shah. Resonate to Abba Shah, the point of departure for all worlds. Climb the slopes of Abba Shah, and all doors will be open for those who believe. Those who walk the shores of forever, where there are no beginnings and no ends. Sovereign Delisior Melubum. Soon he held Loftus's wrist when the candlelight and altar faded away. Loftus fixated on the white-haired Colrain in the high-backed chair, his hands on the parchment as he chanted, Sabun Delisior Melubum. Corrine's form moved away from him gradually like a train leaving the station. His echoing words dissipated and the stars brightened above. 
Sabun delicio melubon. 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 The pool's green smooth surface, bordered by the white slab, extended a great distance to the bunchoff, tapering into the dark sky. Loftus turned, but he saw no one from the Noma. Loftus's bunchoff floated weightless on the chain. He panned the silhouetted jagged peaks against the stars. Where am I? And Coleraine did not answer. Loftus walked along the slab. He bent down briefly and ran his fingers over the smooth, matted surface. But his eyes were focused on the distant, clear bunshoff towering over the pool. He removed his own floating bunshoff and held it firmly in his hand above the long pool's flawless green reflection. His boots clicked against the slab as he strode forward and stared at the bunshoff. Never had he felt so alone. He was once here, in a vision. Yet it was as if this moment had always existed. The reverence for the sanctity of this place caused him to fall to his knees at the edge of the pool. He gazed upward along the massive Bunshoff's angled transparent edges and placed his fingertips at his temples. He only saw stars, yet his heart told him the hordes were near. The words with no meaning repeated in his thoughts as he resonated. Sabrum, Delisior, Melubum. He stood and finally approached the edifice with no idea how he would climb to the top. His own bearded image warped upward, and when he reached out, his hands sunk inside a warm, numbing force. Gripping his bunshaft, Loftus stepped inside and mysteriously ascended above the pool. Through the translucent meteor, he moved higher, but alternately glanced at the bunshaft's reflection in the pool and the starlit rocky peaks beyond. At the Bunshaf apex, a clear cylinder was connected to a white round tube resembling a child's bubble maker. His eyes darted between the Bunshaf and the circular tube. He lifted his smaller Bunshaf upward. Static electricity tickled the hair on his arms and his Bunshaf freely levitated. It rocked into place, suspended within the tube circle and a strong red beam shot toward the pool without disturbing the perfect surface. A second and third beam aligned over the pool and formed a consistent pattern with several stars above. Hues heightened and streams of rainbow light tracked across the sky. His bunshaft was now locked in place. Corain's weakened voice pushed outward in the darkness. Sabrum, Delisior, Melubum. Where are you? Loftus called out, searched the slab and looked skyward. What does it mean? The bunshaft is incomplete. There is an outer sheath to make it complete. It's the only one I've ever had. You cannot open the gate unless the circle is full. Open to what? What is below this pool? Forever. Just tell me what I have to do and I'll do it, yelled Loftus. He did not hear Colroyne's voice for several minutes. The outer sheath. One who possesses the outer sheath. Completing the circle. You're saying there's another half. But no answers came in the cool, starlit air. Loftus stared at the beams and sunk down the bone shaft. He stepped onto the white slab and shuffled it to the edge of the pool. A few hundred yards out, the beams were frozen in the surface. Corrine, where is the other half of the bone shaft? From the slab, Loftus fixed his eyes on the beams. The star grouping aligned perfectly with the pool beams and had a timeless sense within the backdrop of the lofty bunshaft. The star grouping aligned perfectly with the pool beams and had a timeless sense within the backdrop of the lofty bunshaft. Several brighter stars above the peak appeared as an inverted Big Dipper and his thoughts returned to Earth. He smiled and remembered how he would view the stars on cold winter's night with his glossy white telescope. Back then he had dreamed about traveling through space, and now he was far above Earth and across time. He extended his arms outward as he faced the sky. Tell me what I must do. Colrain's voice shook the air again. Is the outer sheet is in the ice crowds. After all this time, 
All the time in the morgue in the desert and it's back in the Ascrans? The Tolton is in possession of the sheath. The Tolton? Do not question, Loftus. He has crossed the passageway as you have crossed the passageway. You must return to the Ascrans. Crossing the desert is not viable. No, the epic borders the sea. A boat will be waiting for you. Its pilot is Jasmine. His sails are green and white. Loftus grinned and furrowed his brows. And I just walk up to the Tolton and ask him to turn over the other half. Follow your heart. And what will happen when I come back here? Loftus waited for the answer. Corain. Loftus ran toward the fading bunshaft, but darkness again enveloped him, and he drifted when he called Corain's name. When he looked up, the rounded and dented squares of the gnome or dome materialized above. He was near the outer glass-edged doors. Zuni and John stood down with the tenders, but Corain was sprawled across the floor. What happened? he asked as he rushed down the aisle. Everyone turned, but Zuni stepped forward. Corain is dead. Why? She looked up and wiped her eyes. He was talking with you. Where were you? In the place of my vision, Alashah. Yes, of course. Your boonshaft is gone. Corain spoke of an outer sheath. John put his hand on Loftus' shoulder. You are right, Tom. I am. What about the boonshaft? asked Zuni. My boonshaft is embedded within a transparent circle atop the huge Abishah boonshaft. It admits bright rays into the reflective pool. The Tolton has the outer sheath. Soon he moved with Loftus and John down the gray cobblestone road dividing the shore mud cottages. Through the breaks along the side roads, the blue ocean brightened above the sea walls. Although the docks were further down the cobblestones, Loftus searched the harbor sails. I still don't see that boat with green and white sails. Trust in Corain's words, said Zuni. All this time I thought the bunshaft was the key, said John. It is half the key, said Loftus. Zuni pointed beyond the stucco buildings near a tree cluster ahead. There, I see it. Loftus shielded his eyes. The upper sails were visible, bobbing slightly in the water beyond the edge of the building. You are the Surrey of Khan, she said. I sensed it right away in the enclave. They continued to a narrow road, dipping behind the cottages. Loftus had a clear view of the wooden hull vessel now. Men worked on the deck while others hauled freight up the long plank, extending to the pier. The docks were dotted with makeshift tents and vendors, promoting trinkets and more substantial goods. They wove through the crowd, sometimes enduring requests from the merchants to view the open-air goods. At the end of the plank, Loftus gazed at the green and white fabric supported by sturdy varnished wood pole masts. In the bright sun, a rusty bearded man with opaque blue eyes looked down from the deck. I am Jasmine. I have been waiting for you. How did you know we would be coming? In resonating? Please board my vessel. I fear the time grows nigh. We must sail today. How far is the Ascrans? asked John. No more than ten days with the easterly winds. He leaned over the rail. I am a cargo mover along the Nezcrans. I make my money by transporting consignments back and forth. I know the coastline well, but in my resonating, I know we must cross the Seskrand, the Great Sea. I know the trade route from times before the Tolton. I will transport you to the Mead. Thank you, said Loftus. Jasmier motioned him up the plank. His wide lips protruded from his wispy beard hairs as he spoke. Please, please, accommodations have been prepared. Loftus faced Zuni. Without your help, I would not have ascended Abishar. I am fated to go with you now. I must follow my heart, no matter what the fate. Loftus raised his brows. What I am about to do is risky, to say the least. You belong here in the Nezcrans. Loftus, you don't fully understand. A place has been prepared for her, Loftus, said Jasmere. I don't understand how you know these things, Zuni. Jasmere produced a rolling but subtle laugh. <laughs> you don't have to. Greater forces are at work. Please bring the young woman and John aboard. 
We shall sail within the hour. The task before you is great and the time is now. You must do what you have to do and return to Abishar. Loftus seeks out the people who are in better touch with the ancient ways, specifically Korain, the elderly leader of the people. His knowledge will lead Loftus to the mystical Abishar. Next week, join me where Loftus returns to the medieval atmosphere of the Mead, where he confronts the Tolton and Calf in episode three of the Seri of Khan by Robert P. Finn. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com. And here's a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.